0: Welcome to the Fabulous
1: 413, I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, we'll eat extra fresh in Deerfield at Champneys Tavern with executive chef Charlie David and see how tapping into the local produce and other offerings has helped to flesh out their menu.
0: And gender equity. We bring... Amy Calandrella of Western Mass Tradeswomen in to talk about her career building community for the 10% of women in the trades industry in Massachusetts and the need to recruit more women and non-binary folks to the construction trades. But first, we're making a concerted effort in this election year to see how the ties of
1: Beacon Hill to the four counties of Western Mass might bind. To that end... State Senator Joe Comerford joins us. Senator Comerford has served the Hampshire, Franklin, and Worcester District on Beacon Hill for the past five years. Believe it or not, Senator Joe.
0: (laughs) Unbelievable. Her district comprises 25 cities and towns stretching from Northampton to Ashburnham. Where is Ashburnham? Close to Boston.
1: Wow, that's a big district.
0: That's ridiculous. It's also
1: amazing that it's three words in one. Ashburnham. That sounds like my post-Easter
0: debacle. I mean, it just sounds like English being extra English. Yes.
1: Senator Joe, uh, we've known each other, full disclosure, for like 20 years, long before you were a senator. You've done things in the past like work with the Food Bank of Western Mass, which is very important to me and to you. Uh, The National Priorities Project, crunching budget numbers on the federal level and making them comprehensible to the lay person who doesn't know anything about math like me. And uh, your role as a senator will be interesting this week, I'm sure, because the Senate is about to debate a gun bill. And this comes from Politico after an interchamber procedural squabble led the House to go solo on gun regulations last fall, the Senate is now out with its own plan for strengthening the state's firearm laws. Can you tell us a little bit about what the Senate's gun bill looks like, and why it's getting opposition to the point where you're seeing some folks putting up these little signs in their yards?
0: And, like, so many different numbers on those, like, I'm not sure which ones are the Senate ones, which ones are the House ones, or if they're just bills that have come forward and been changed, so their number got changed.
2: This is all very confusing, I know. Um, I will say that I am exceedingly proud of the Senate's gun bill. It focuses on illegal gun use and in curtailing gun violence both through uh, mechanisms to support us being better about understanding risk of suicide and then of course community-based violence. I'm happy to take you through some of the provisions I really support most but what's important for you to understand and i think for all of us to understand is that people in western massachusetts had a lot to do with the strength of this gun bill you know our law enforcement officials they came together and they told us this is how we want to do better work this is how we want to be part of the solution to bring down gun violence hunters threw down in northern franklin county and said look we're legal gun owners we hunt for our food and sometimes we fill food bank shelves, Monty. Uh, so you have to allow us to train the next generation of hunters because this is our way of life. And certainly, folks representing every town in Giffords—you know—they came through my office in, you know, in the district and in Boston and said, "Look, these are some best practices we still don't do in uh, Massachusetts that we could do." So I do think the Senate's bill is lean and mean. And it has had the input and i actually think important advocacy from western massachusetts i think it's enforceable which is very important to me right mm-hmm. we can't pass policy that we can't enforce that's self-congratulatory without impact
1: yeah um, right.
2: and it's going to move the needle
1: What's interesting about this bill, and you alluded to this, is that it does have the backing of uh, law enforcement. The Agawam police chief, Eric Gillis, said, as you mentioned, that the bill is concise and enforceable, that he believed maybe the House rushed through their proposal uh, a little bit. But what are some of the specifics that you say would be easy to add to the laws of Massachusetts that maybe other states are doing already?
2: So first, it bans Glock switches and trigger activators, we understand those to be part of what makes a weapon more more harmful potentially more more harmful they will be banned in the commonwealth it exple- it expands what's called a red flag or extreme risk protective order from police and family to healthcare providers so more people can raise alarm when they are concerned for someone's well-being to themselves or others it expands uh, what happens when someone goes for a, a harassment prevention order? At that hearing, there can be a conversation around gun ownership and whether or not the person's guns should remain with them. If if someone is seeking a harassment order, goes right at ghost guns and aligns the ghost gun definition with the federal definition, right? Which is exceedingly important for us in Western Massachusetts. It also aligns the definition of assault weapons so that we can make sure uh, that the assault weapon definition as it's currently being interpreted by our attorney general are aligned. That's important because as you know, the federal government withdrew its assault weapons ban. Mm -hmm. So we had to hunker down on hours. And in fact, I have an amendment that I uh, added, thanks to great counsel that says basically an assault weapon is assault weapon, regardless of the length of the barrel. So we're going at that. We're also going at things like, and this may sound less impactful, but I think it's really important. We're going at things we heard from police officers around information they need at the point of licensure to understand whether or not someone should be given a gun license. We heard through the through process of real digging deep about some faulty connections in our databases. And so we're gonna try to shore those up so that a chief of police in Deerfield, when a person comes in for a license, that chief has every bit of information they need and deserve to make a determination. We're also through amendment that I filed, I hope, going to get really clear on the process of citing a gun dealership in a local community. Mm -hmm. Right now, a chief has the ability to say yes or no. And I believe in the local control of our chiefs. They know our community the best. Uh, But right now, if the chief says no, the person or the business owner can apply to uh, the state police colonel and get that overturned. That doesn't work. Um, because the state police colonel in a barrack someplace far away doesn't know our community. So hopefully we'll amend it through an amendment I filed to go to the courts. I do think the Agawam chief is correct when uh, they speak about the concise nature of the bill. And we really do try to go after illegal gun use, improper gun use, and we try to steer clear of lawful gun ownership. And that's that has to do with our belief that lawful gun owners should have the right to own their guns but also it has to do with enforceability there's plenty of work to be done to enforce a crackdown on illegal gun ownership and our police want to do that work and so we're focusing there the thing i'll say is that it's always easier to go second i think we should also (laughs) all say that in the commonwealth you know the senate has the you know has had the luxury of learning from the house process hearing people's thinking being refined as they approach us. And we've had the luxury of more time. So I have every piece of gratitude I can muster from my great House colleagues. And, you know, after the Senate passes its bill in some form, there's 79 amendments filed. Yeah, that makes Uh, it
1: less concise, I'll say.
2: Well, I mean, you know, not all those amendments will go and we're talking about them now. But after we pass the bill on Thursday, I expect it to pass. I believe the Senate has run a very good process, and I'm proud of my own process on the bill for my constituents. Then we'll get the opportunity to go into conference with smart and good House partners, and I hope come out with a bill that will again push Massachusetts forward in leading the nation uh, on smart gun laws.
1: We're speaking with State Senator Joe Comerford, who is from the very expansive Hampshire, Franklin, and Worcester district. One more thing on guns before we leave that. One of these seventy-nine amendments does have a quote unquote grandfather clause that would exempt some people who already own assault style rifles from this law. What's your take on that amendment and what is that likely to be part of the final Senate bill?
2: You know, I'm I'm digesting the amendments. The deadline, as you know, was just yesterday. Uh, so I don't have a take on all of them yet. I know the ones I filed to strengthen the ability of chiefs to deal with gun dealership and to make sure that we don't have any wiggle room for how we talk about assault rifles in the Commonwealth. Um, And I'm looking at everybody else's. Mm-hmm. amendments.
1: We're speaking with State Senator Joe Cummerford. Uh, a recent story came out of the governor's office in regards to the budget. Now, the tax revenues were not what they were expected to be. Some of this, Governor Healy is pushing back to the Charlie Baker administration, but there were a bunch of agencies in Western Mass that are feeling the effects of the governor's decision to cut $375 million in the state budget this year, some of them that were chronicled by Mass Live. Forest Park Zoo has in half Basketball Hall of Fame, Women's Fund of Western Mass. We talked to Martin Luther. The king jr family services their budget is getting cut that's the beginning of the march for the food
0: bank which, valley cdc the, too yeah. and wayfinders like everybody got a little bit of the hit
1: including NEPM. so what is the legislature doing about these are they called c9 cuts if i remember the they're correct nine c nine c cuts. right you sunk my battleship
2: they're nine C cuts <laughs> you know um it is a heavy and weighty responsibility of the governor to balance the budget we are required constitutionally in massachusetts to have a balanced budget, and so when revenues don't come in as projected, and you'll remember we just did a consensus revenue for the next fiscal year. These are you know smart people in a room looking at all the numbers, and so two you know last December, not this past one, but the one before, the same thing happened for the current fiscal year, mm-hmm. where people said, "Look, this is what we think we're going to make," um, and so therefore this is what we think we can spend, and we were off on those projections. Yeah, it happens. It happens in basically, once at least once in many administrations, if not all administrations, it is brutal to have to execute on 9C cuts.
0: Mm
1: -hmm.
2: There isn't any recourse for the legislature on 9C cuts, unlike budget overrides, which we did in the fiscal year 24 budget, if you'll remember, but we don't have anything to say about 9C cuts, except to our constituents that we hear them Mm -hmm. um, when they are upset about them, which is you know something that I'm sure the governor shares I know we share um, the hardship there and now we go into the fiscal year 25 budget where actually the consensus revenue says we're going to be about 200 million dollars lower than last year mm. well, mm. 100 million may sound like nothing when we're talking about multiple billions of dollars but that plus you know inflation and the erosion of inflation on a dollar That's going to make the budget seem smaller, Um, and it will be actually smaller in the fiscal year 25 than it was in 24. All estimates indicate that we'll be back on track in fiscal year 26, but in 25, uh, in the base budget, which is a combination of all tax revenue plus federal spending into the Commonwealth, we're going to have to do some belt tightening.
0: How much of that belt tightening is due to Governor Healy's tax breaks? Coming up, more with State Senator Joe Comerford.
1: And later in the show, Amy Calandrella of Western Mass Tradeswomen about her work helping to bring more women into the construction trades.
0: Plus a tour and a taste of one of the best salads around at Champneys at the Deerfield Inn. You're listening to The Fabulous
1: 413 on 88.5 NEPM.
2: The governor is looking under every couch cushion i'm sure you've heard that reported she's been
1: in my
0: house it was annoying
2: yeah, she, i'm sure she came to your house monty um <laughs> scooping out that money
0: so she's in your backyard going is this where the hot tub was yeah right
2: she was in the back seat of my car yep. and she's doing some smart things to try to save money we have to be fiscally more strategic and a little bit more prudent i support her uh, trying to figure out in her own values, a prioritization of tax dollars that makes sense to her.
1: We're speaking with State Senator Joe Cummerford. Some of this may have to do with some of the tax cuts that the governor implemented. Now, we do have the millionaire's tax all of a sudden that is going for specific purposes. Should the governor, in your opinion, be rethinking these tax cuts that she implemented in her first year in office because of this uh, budget shortfall and the, the projected budget shortfall into the future?
2: Yeah, it's a very good question. Rethinking recently passed taxes is is a tough piece of work on top of putting together a fiscal year 25 budget. I think long-term, we are going to have to rethink the tax package that we just passed. I don't want to rethink the child tax credit, the renter tax credit, the the senior tax credit. Mm -hmm. I don't want to rethink any of those. I want us to keep the tax credits that benefit middle and low and working people, low income and working people, I want that and our seniors um, and families. I wouldn't mind personally revisiting the short term capital gains tax credit or tax break um, that was in the final bill. I personally would like to see that go. And I don't think it's going to be an immediate fix, Monty, but I do think long term, I hope we're able to get back to that. The really interesting conversation, and I actually think you guys talk about this so beautifully on your show, which I'm a fan of, is what's gonna make Massachusetts a place where everybody can thrive? Mm -hmm. What's gonna make us a commonwealth where everybody belongs? And I know in the Senate, and, and my personal view is, We are a place where everybody can thrive and people want to come to where life is affordable, where there's opportunities, where there's housing and transportation and healthcare, where there's equity across everything you can imagine, but especially income and race, ethnicity, uh, geography. And I do think that the state government has a role to play in making sure that we do strategic investments that creates this place where people want to come to. There are other viewpoints, right, where we make life cheaper in a sense and that's how people want to come to us it's just not a view that i i share innately and that's actually a lot of research doesn't support that view either we are an expensive state and we have to figure out the way in which we make it affordable equitably and we create opportunity equitably so that all boats rise that was supposed to be a short answer to your question <laughs> Are we going to rethink the taxes and i don't think we're going to rethink them in the short term long term i'd like to go back to them because i do think we need to make sure that the tax breaks we're giving are for working families individuals who are currently low income elders folks who are marginalized structurally and need a boost from us and we need to not reward folks who are doing exceedingly well we need to ask them to continue investing in our common well-being in the commonwealth.
0: Is there worry that reversing those tax cuts so soon might also adversely affect the 2025 fiscal year or this coming no, fiscal no, no, year? I
2: don't I don't think, I don't see a world in which we are tackling those tax cuts in the mm. short term. They've just been implemented. Um, it's a volatile time economically. We're seeing the end of the federal gush of revenue during ARPA, you know, and all the federal spending during the pandemic. So that's trickling through our economy, even as we did those tax cuts. So it's a very volatile time. I also don't think there's political will, frankly, in the legislature among the body to tackle them. I would like to go back, me personally, Joe, would (laughs) like to go back and tackle them, but I don't think it's happening in the short term.
1: We're speaking with State Senator Joe Comerford. Earlier this month, the Joint Committee on Agriculture, which is a chaired by you, Senator Comerford, uh, introduced several bills that are about protecting our farms. And we had you on the show in the aftermath of the horrible July floods. Some of these bills are related to that. One of them is about PFAS contamination, which is something that people are starting to learn more about. My son, in his first year of college, actually had to do a science project for weeks about PFAS. He's sick to death of it. And as we all should be, uh, <laughs> tell us what PFAS... Or PFAS, as some people call it, what they are and what your bill sure. that has been introduced would do to help protect farmers from them.
2: Sure. And then let's talk about just disaster relief writ large. Mm-hmm. Because yes. Because that's another thing that I, I think we could talk about with your listeners. So, you know, I'm super proud of the Joint Committee on Agriculture. I am the acting Senate chair. I stepped in to fill Ann Gobi's giant shoes <laughs> um, as she transitioned to the administration. And we're releasing very smart bills filed by our great colleagues. The one you're talking about, uh, which would really address PFAS or PFOA, um, which are people made chemicals. Forever chemicals, do- they
1: get called, right?
2: Mm-hmm. What? Forever, forever chemicals. Yes. yes. And there are thousands of them. Yes. And we understand now very clearly, very conclusively that they are very bad for our health. And they are everywhere. They're in all of us, actually, I'm sure, because they are part of what makes containers or cookware water resistant. They did their job very well, except they don't do a good job inside of us, mm. right? They're neurotoxins, they're transmitted in utero. It's a very, very big deal. And I believe, and as you know, Monty, because we've talked about this, I filed a bill to ban them completely in the Commonwealth. There is actually no else, nothing else for us to do. Mm. We must ban these. Manufacturers can make these products, almost 100% of them. There might be a few edge cases, like a computer wire that can only be insulated with one kind of these chemicals. Okay, we can talk about that, right? We're not insane. But most everything, car seats, drapes, Teflon pans, they can all be manufactured without these chemicals. And maybe we lose Teflon, uh, but we get another kind of pan. Honestly, Teflon's
0: do- not that good for you anyway. Because of exactly. this in some ways, yeah. No, yes. no,
2: it has because of PFAS, right? Yes. Um, but we can do that. What's true? is that because these chemicals are everywhere, inside of us, on the land, we want to be mindful of the impact of them on farms. And your listeners may have heard about what happened in Maine. They opened up this, what is a Pandora's box? And it has created some exceeding hardship for Maine farmers. And so what we're doing in the Commonwealth, and this is actually very informed by the smartest Ag experts in the Commonwealth and, and in the New England is we're saying, okay, friends, it's very possible. In fact, likely that farms have P- some farms, potentially many farms have PFAS in some or all of their soil. So what does this mean and how did it get there? We're taking little steps to enter this conversation with our farmers to keep them and keep people safe.
1: Before we let you go, there is another act relative to agricultural crop and property destruction. And we have seen that writ large over the past growing year. We don't know what this year has in store yet. Talk to us a little bit about that bill.
2: Sure. Well, that's actually super interesting. And as you know, it's filed by the wonderful Natalie Blay, Mm -hmm. right? And so Rep Blay was thinking about um, and contemplating in that legislation targeted help for our farmers, which I share. Uh, And the committee passed that out favorably. But Rep Blay and I also filed a much larger concept, which is a disaster relief program for the Commonwealth, Mm -hmm. for farmers, for nonprofits, for homeowners, for renters, for municipalities. And it it was informed by the fact that Massachusetts is one of two states nationally uh, that has no structural response to disaster. We meet disasters, and the legislature has done this four times in my five years, right? So we meet them as one-off instances in terms of money to respond and rebuild. Nema, which you know responds through a state program, does excellent work, but we don't have the money to, say, help Orange when it had that cataclysmic fire mm-hmm. or help Deerfield when it was swamped with water in these last July storms. We have to go appropriate that as a one-off appropriation. And so uh, Rep. Lay and I filed a bill. It was informed by um, Pew Research, which helped us understand the best practices nationwide uh, for how to stand up a new program, how to fund it. We're suggesting that we fund it Uh, by diverting some short-term capital gains revenue. Now you know why I want that capital gains. Um,
1: Uh
2: (laughs) We're diverting it uh, from the rainy day fund.
0: Because it could literally affect a rainy day.
2: It could affect a rainy day. Or, it's a
0: series of them that never Mm -hmm. end. Yeah.
2: Exactly. And we filed the bill. Emergency management directors loved it. Uh, Public safety loved it. Public health loved it. You know, it really was gaining momentum. And then um, the governor put it in her fiscal year 25 budget essentially the same bill. She made some good improvements, I believe, but she's essentially uh, suggesting that we do this bill that Replay and I filed. As you know, the governor can file money and she can file what are called outside sections. This is an outside section. It's a bold initiative. I credit her and thank her for just wanting to do what's right for communities and farms and individuals. And I'm hoping we get to pass this um, and make it law. And I do think it's a way for us. Rep Lea and I to say to our constituents, we see you and we know that these disasters are not going to abate. Climate change is here. We have more severe weather. We have more frequent severe weather. And we are going to set up a system where the Commonwealth can be a partner in repairing and rebuilding in real time without a question of if it's really going to be a question of when. We're going to have to follow it now, right? The, the governor's budget It's filed and the House will do its version and the Senate will do its version. So it's far from being a fait accompli.
1: State Senator Joe Cummerford, who represents the Hampshire, Franklin and Worcester District on Beacon Hill and has for the past five years. Thank you so much for joining us here, Senator Cummerford.
2: All right, you guys, I appreciate you. I appreciate what you do raising up the valley and the region. It is really important work what you're doing and you're lifting so many boats all at once um with your smart brains and good humor. No so thank you for telling the stories of the people.
0: Later later in the show, Amy Calendra. Oh, my goodness. Calandrella. <laughs> Calandrella. It's a fun name to say. It sure Which is. is why my brain got all mixed up. Operating engineer with Local 98 out of Southwick and board member of the Western Mass Area Labor Federation on how to bring more women into the construction trades. But up next, we'll talk with the executive chef of Champney's Restaurant and Tavern at the historic Deerfield Inn. You're listening to The Fabulous 413
1: on 88.5 NEPM. Did you have a nice birthday the other day, Phil?
3: I really, really did, Monty. And I can't believe you were just waiting for me to arrive at Up and Gill Farm. Mm-hmm.
1: It couldn't have been more walk the talkie. Like, here I am trying to check out at Up and Gill Farm with my raw milk and all my <laughs> veggies. Who walks in? Mr. Buy Local himself, Phil <laughs> Gorman and his wonderful wife. On your birthday, nonetheless.
3: On my birthday. That's what I wanted to do. And then I went to um, yeah, Upper Bend for a great lunch. Yeah, yeah. Shameless plug the Guildmont of your district.
0: Shameless blow.
1: We are at Champneys at the Deerfield Inn in historic Deerfield. And what's your name? My name is Charles David. I'm the executive chef here. Phil Corman from CESA, the local hero folks, joins us too. We're going to take a little tour of the restaurant here at Champneys and the inn. We're going to see if there's any ghosts. I mean, there's ghosts. Are there ghosts here? There might be some, if you're lucky.
0: <laughs> this is There were like, There were unpleasant things that happened in history here. There, there are. are definitely ghosts. It's
4: very rich and colorful history. Yeah. So we are in our tavern right now. This is one of our three dining areas that we have at the inn. And then we can move on over to our next dining area here, which is our formal room. It does feel more formal. It definitely does. (laughs) Not just a clever name. (laughs) Nope, this is our formal room. So if we have special events for anyone that comes in, whether it be a wedding, a baby shower, this is where you can have one of your events or down in our terrace where I'll show you where we have an actual separate room that you can have for your events. And when we're really busy, we open this room up here.
0: What are the times where it gets busiest? So, just like
4: any, any other place in the Valley, right. that that is the fall. It,
1: the fall explodes everywhere. <laughs> and I'm imagining graduation season too with Deerfield Academy right around the corner.
4: Yes, that is very true. Uh, they run a very similar uh, graduation schedule as to the colleges in the area, so they definitely double down on us.
1: <laughs> Taylor Swift was dating a Kennedy that went to Deerfield Academy. Did she ever stay here?
4: N- not that I know of.
1: Okay, just checking. <laughs> Who's famous that stayed here that you have seen over the years?
4: Um, some of the Rockefeller grandchildren have been here. Um, some other guests, uh, distinguished guests that I don't think I'm... You're not allowed to say? To Good. To Good. I have to ask five these five hard-hitting old. questions. <laughs> but we know you're here, Tom Brady. Yeah,
0: hiding under the floorboard so that people won't bother him. Stop asking. Stop <laughs> asking.
4: And during the summers and stuff, as you see our patio out the window, this is where we hold on Thursday nights. We have music on the patio where we have local artists come and play music. So when you come dine with us and stuff, you'll see some featured artists come out and play while you're eating with us. So the inn has been here since 1880s, the late 1880s. and. In historic Deerfield, it's a very colorful history, and I don't think we have a lot of time to cover that. We need a whole other segment. Well, there's a guy who wrote a book
1: about it that wants to get on the show. That we're still debating whether we're going to have him on or not. Oh, you should. It's very, it's really
4: colorful, and it really um, adds to where. Um, a lot of Western Mass comes from, because it's just not historic Deerfield. A lot of the people that actually came and settled in historic Deerfield aren't from Deerfield. They are what they call the water people. They're from Holyoke and stuff that have come up and settled, and they made historic Deerfield what it is.
0: Mm. Has working in a historic location like this, even with modern amenities, but has working in this setting been different from other kitchens that you've worked in?
4: A little bit. Every I think every kitchen has its own uniqueness and identity. We're fully modernized here. We don't have a hearth and <laughs> kitchen, fortunately, that <laughs> comes through.
0: how cool through. would it be to it, it, it definitely
4: does. Um, if you do come visit historic Deerfield and stuff, there are many exhibits that they have and they do have an exhibit on old-time deer field and
1: stuff on how they actually cooked with a hearth and mm. they don't make you do that no but you are a veteran of the local restaurant scene right i am i so i've been here a little over 20
3: years and you came from about as far away in the united states as one could come
4: i did i did so i'm originally from hawaii oh nice and <laughs> so you decided
1: to
0: live here i in the did
4: winter. i did so <laughs> it was a choice that i never forgot it reminds
0: you every <laughs> winter
1: 100 you took the words right out of my every winter But <laughs> well, let's go talk about the menu and how you're incorporating sure. the the local bounty that still exists even in the winter time in, into the menu yeah
4: the local bounty from when i started till now is has definitely changed for the best still pretty surreal that when you really take it all in and go through it all there's quite a bit that the valley has to offer
1: Okay, now we're back in the tavern. This is a relatively new ish bar, but it looks amazing. It's a total you know, wrap around horseshoe bar. You have a mug club here, too. We
4: definitely do have a mug club that we feature some local brewers and other brewers from our neighboring states,
1: such as Vermont and Maine. And I know that the Yankee Sippa, who's one of our State Street wine snobs that comes on our show regularly, she's a uh, mug club member. Do she's you, got uh, one of these mugs up here.
4: Oh, wonderful. Yes. No, <laughs> it definitely is beneficial to be part of the mug club if you are into sampling some hops and stuff. And uh, the mug club entail... They have their own tap. Do they? Yeah,
0: there's a tap that just says Mug Club members. Oh wow, cool. <laughs> it does. So
4: so that is an exclusive tap that we have and that tap is a rotating tap. We have BBC on here all the time. We have Element. We have some of the local guys on here that we like to feature.
0: So I gotta ask about your mugs because they're all kind of rustic and awesome and they stay here. You don't get to take them home.
4: So our Mug Club is an annual mug club. So after the year and you wanna renew your membership, and you get a new mug, so you get to take your mug home. And our mugs are all handmade, so every one of them is a little different, and we get them from the same person.
1: Real pottery mugs here, super, I love these. Super yeah. cool. So tell us about what's on the menu right now and what we're gonna sample here a little So
4: bit. today you guys are gonna sample a beet salad that we have. It's a special beet salad. And this is, uh, we're featuring winter moon beets.
0: Hey, we hey. just saw their beets in their location just a couple weeks ago. Well, no, oh, these are the ones they're sending you because the ones we saw were large.
4: <laughs> were they? So these are in, be- <laughs> these are in between a uh, a baseball <laughs> and a golf ball. Nothing crazy. Okay. But- so, uh, our beet salad consists of uh, the Little Leaf, Little Farms greens. We have pistachios, blue cheese,
0: uh, orange Supremes. Orange Supremes is just the segments taken out of the oranges for anybody who's wondering what that was. I thought it was Diana Ross's band. No. <laughs> Should
4: we dig in? Definitely dig in. The one on the left has pancetta. The one on the right is pancetta-free.
1: You can have have the pancetta-free one, Phil. All for me.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So I'm kind of curious, and I don't think I've asked many chefs this. I'm curious how what you eat has changed based on what you're cooking for others.
4: My normal dining when I'm I'm off or I have time off is very low-key, very casual, very comfort food. Yeah. This is my my day-to-day and I have this stuff every day. And
1: there's nothing wrong with it, but when I'm when I'm at home, it's very, very casual. It's like when I see brewers out at bars drinking Miller High Lives when they're making like the highest quality beers in the valley. Right. <laughs> were you a chef when you were in Hawaii?
4: I started out there in Hawaii. Um, I apprenticed for a little bit. That's how I really got into the industry. Mm-hmm. And then it was always my plan. B, I never thought this would be my choice career. Mm. I always knew I had something in my back pocket if I needed to fall back on or if I ever got hungry. <laughs> <No>. <laughs>
1: I'm imagining the um, kind of ingredients that you have at your disposal in Hawaii are much different than they are in Deerfield, Massachusetts.
4: They are a little bit different. Back home, it's gotten better, but even lettuce is great back home. But, you know, here we get lettuce all the time. Yeah. You know, milk here is abundant you know um, milk back home and takes a little bit to bring it in so mm.
0: are there things like comfort foods or foods that you grew up with in Hawaii that you've been able to adapt for the produce that you're able to find here
4: the one that really comes to mind that's very comforting is uh, taro leaves we have them in laulau lau. for that I'll use swiss chard or um, some kale taro leaves are a very unique leaf that um Some say it tastes like spinach, but I think it's a little, some, it's in between a spinach and a kale and collard greens, really, and Mm -hmm. you gotta cook the
1: the heck out of it. You've been a chef, executive chef of Champneys here at the Deerfield Inn, Charlie David, for 20 years here in Western Massachusetts. Have you noticed a difference in availability of local things that you can work with as a chef in that 20 years? Oh,
4: definitely, Um, there's a lot more farms and stuff now that are being able to share their bounty before you could probably only get one of something you know or like the beets would only come from one farm now Mm -hmm. there's a few farms out there that feature beets and greens are coming through everyone's got greens the asparagus alone the infamous Hadley grass there's Mm -hmm. a lot more farms out there
3: (laughs) you know and it's great so it's so beautiful sitting here and I would imagine that a lot of people don't know that it's actually an accessible restaurant to come to. One doesn't have to be dressed to the nines and be ready to have that only one elegant meal they can afford a year. Absolutely. Also ramps. There uh, are ramps. I thought you uh, meant the foraged vegetable. Oh, oh no. Also, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, there yeah. are ramps to get in here that way, too.
0: <laughs> and also people, slow your roll with harvesting ramps. No, I, when you say accessible, I immediately think like, oh, can wheelchairs get in? Yes.
1: So both accessible to wheelchairs and to um, a budget.
4: 100%. So we are definitely, I think that's something that we definitely would like to be known as, that you know, this is not just a a formal place to come to, but you can come here in your shorts, whether you're coming off the river, or you're going for a hike, or you're stopping in after soccer practice with your kids to grab burger and pizza, or you want that one special evening that you have date night on, you can still come see us.
1: Yeah, nice. We're almost in February, which is the longest, shortest month of the year, but some people view the middle of the month and Valentine's Day as an oasis, and you have some Valentine's-related things happening here at Champions at the Deerfield.
4: Correct, we do. We do have um, Valentine's Day itself, and then we also have a Valentine's uh, wine tasting menu that we have that we're going to be pairing with a chocolate theme. Oh. We don't want to open
1: those up right now, do we? No. (laughs) (laughs) We'll save that for your mug club member, uh, (laughs) the Yankee Sippa,
0: later in the week. (laughs) What's your current favorite
4: thing on the menu? My current favorite thing on the menu, our mussels, we, I love our mussels that we do. Our fish comes from uh, Wool's Fish, their Boston purveyor. Um, they're right from the docks to us, which is great.
1: Well, these winter moon roots beets in your champese salad are pretty delicious. I just dropped a piece of blue cheese on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> Good thing they have housekeeping here at the Deerfield Inn.
3: They just follow Monty around.
1: Yeah, with a vacuum cleaner. I found it. What's the most haunted thing that happened in this allegedly haunted <laughs> inn, the Deerfield Inn, I, to I, you, Executive I, Chef
4: Charlie Davis? To we'll talk
0: m- about the ghosts, they come out <laughs> and they're like, "We heard what you said that day." Bring it. No, to we're not m- the ones who have to live with the consequences.
4: <laughs> to me, myself, there nothing really excited has come has come out for me. The jury's still out on my part.
0: You know. <laughs> <laughs> Up next. Amy Calandrella from the Organizing Committee of Western Mass Tradeswomen on encouraging more women to get involved with the construction
3: trades. You're
0: listening to the Fabulous 413 on 885 NEPM. 8
3: the Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at Northeast Solar.com.
1: And I said, well, how hard can it be? Boys do it. And then I said, how hard can it be? Boys do it. I'm told by our resident young person, engineer, (laughs) Betsy Langtoe, that that's called a TikTok. Oh,
0: my God. And uh,
1: that's a a trending TikTok as well. We'll figure out how that fits into what we're going to talk about right now. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte.
0: I am Khalees Smith. The percentage of women in the construction industry in the United States is at a paltry 4%. That's less than the military, police, doctors, engineering, law, basically any profession where you would think women are underrepresented. But in Massachusetts, at least, we have been able to raise the percentage of women enrolled in union-registered apprenticeship programs to over 10% and rising.
1: Amy Calandrella is a journeyman, or is that what we should still call it? Operating engineer with Local 98 out of Southwick, Massachusetts. She's also a part-time instructor in the Apprentice Program. Amy sits on the board of the Western Mass Area Labor Federation and is on the organizing committee of the Western Mass Tradeswoman. And even as recently as moments ago in the green room, was trying to recruit women and young women into the trades. Oh,
0: did you get to talk to Kara? I did. Okay. <laughs> I mentioned, at, at lunch, I mentioned that you were coming in and she was talking about her youngest child. I'm like, oh, maybe you should talk to this person who we have, to, to Amy, who's coming in to talk about literally this thing you were talking about with your child. So I'm so glad that happened. And
1: you had a flyer ready to go.
0: Yes. <laughs> and I
1: tried to get Kara to come be part of this conversation talk about that. Kara yeah, no. turned us down.
0: <laughs> uh, but
1: this is something that, apart from your, your day job, which is doing the actual construction, it's uh, part of your mission. Why? Tell us why. this is something that is important to you, Amy?
5: Because I love doing what I do. I didn't know that construction was an opportunity for me when I was a young woman. I know that my friends love doing what they do. I can make a lot more money than I've ever made. Um, And so it's important to all of us to make sure that there are women out there that I understand that this is an option.
0: What Fields are considered parts of the the trade industry that you're trying to recruit more people into.
5: Plumbers, electricians, uh, elevator constructors, operating engineers, uh, laborers, iron workers, carpenters. It's a big, it's a big big world. There's so
0: much that's possible there. So like people's understanding of like what you could do in the field is also maybe like a little narrow as well. But you're working to alleviate that.
5: Yeah, like my, my friend Brandy's a sheet metal worker, and I'm always having to ask her, but like, what is that? You know, <laughs> it's, it's within construction. <laughs> I work alongside them, but still, you know, we think what one another does is so cool.
1: Mm-hmm. Tell us what sparked your interest in this. What were you kind of doing or thinking your trajectory was going to be before? And then what turned you on to these trades?
5: Well, I was in I was in agriculture, right? So I went to UMass. I thought I was going to be a teacher. Started volunteering at a farm, and I said, "Oh my God, I know nothing about nothing," uh, <laughs> and I got really interested in working. You know, so I started to work on farms and got pulled into the the valley farming scene. Uh, and it was just real hard for me to make a life out of that. People do it, and it's wonderful, but it was just not working for me. And so I knew how to run a tractor. Uh, I knew I wanted to be a part of the labor movement and figure out how to stage my fight there. And so I kind of sat down on my kitchen table one day and had like a little panic attack, you know, and Googled women in construction. Uh, And I found this great video that the Carpenters Committee, uh, sorry, the Women's Committee of the Carpenters had put out with all of these women in downtown Boston standing on top of buildings they built. And they said, I built that. Uh You know, I started crying. I said, oh, my God, I want to. I want to do that. And I did a little more research and I found out the operating engineers would be a better fit for me um, because of my experience. No, <laughs> I really did not know what I was getting into, you know, <laughs> uh, being being an operator is, is uh, not like running a tractor exactly, you know, mm-hmm. but that's the great thing about the the union apprenticeship programs is that you get to come in at the ground level and then you get An education paid for by your fellow union members um, for four years, just like it's college, and you get brought into the trade. And so I was able to go from someone that didn't really know what a grease gun was, you know, to now I I run excavators and bobcats and forklifts and loaders, and uh, I do dirt work, I do asphalt work, I've worked around cranes all over Western Massachusetts. So it's just been like a massive game changer for me. Um, And I never, you know, I, I don't want anyone to just have that kitchen table experience, you know, like that. Again, there's, there's ways that we can get this information out there to women in the region about, you know, what it's like to be a construction worker, that there are other women out there that we like. You know, we like each other. We want you um, And you can make like a hell of a good living doing it.
0: Yeah. And who doesn't want to run a crane? I mean, like, (laughs) I would be terrified, actually. No, it seems (laughs) like the best thing ever. It is. The closest I've ever gotten is running a cherry picker, like hanging lights when I got to be theater electrician. But um, do you think that it's easier or that there are barriers learning it uh, later in life as opposed to encouraging more younger women to enter trade schools to do the same?
5: You know, I think there's all different paths there. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, if you're a a young person who's had the opportunity to be around um, uh, manual labor, you know, you learn how to be a worker. And I think that is worth something. Um, But at the same time, I have friends in construction who were uh, PCAs or they were uh, teachers or they worked in any other kind of field. And they said, this is just not for me. And it turns out they have a knack for plumbing, you know, or they have a good eye for grade. And so it's, it's a great trade to get into as a younger person. But also, you know, I know people that started when they were 40 years old, and it's been a wonderful thing for
1: them, too. We're speaking with Amy Calandrella, who is an operating engineer with Local 98 out of Southwick, but also sits on the board of Western Mass Area Labor Federation and is on the organizing committee of Western Mass Trades women. Tell us what the dynamic is like on the job site. The statistics across the country are low 4% women in Massachusetts, better, but still only 10% women. And you sent in some of your biography information that sometimes you're the only woman on a job site. What's that dynamic like?
5: Uh, well, most of the time, I'm the only woman on a job site. Uh, and the the dynamic really, really varies. Um, sometimes it's wonderful. You know, I had an experience this year where I got, I was working right down uh, the street, actually, at the new Mass Mutual Center parking garage, uh, running a loader for Northern Construction. And, you know, I got, I got done with my first day in the I got done off the machine and one of the carpenters, another trade, you know, he put out his hand for me and he shook my hand and he said, I've never seen a woman do what you're doing. You're doing great. It's awesome. And he started talking to me about his wife and his daughter and how much he loves being a carpenter. And I've noticed that it makes a difference to the men sometimes to see us out there. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they like it. You know, and, and then there's the other side of it, you know, where they're sort of looking at each other and they're looking at me and they're like... Um, You know, I, what am I allowed to say in front of you? I don't know.
0: You know. But honestly, if you're thinking about it, maybe you shouldn't have said it in the first, thought about it or said it out loud in the first place. So perhaps that's a good thing for everyone all around. Yeah, it's a
1: learning experience all
0: around. <laughs> yes. Uh, oh, on the other end of that, what's it been like on jobs where you haven't been the only woman
5: it's wonderful. I mean, it's great. It's great. I'm we. So the another job I've been on in Springfield is the MGM uh, casino, you know, and that's a job like, um, like the Soldiers Home that's being built now in Holyoke, where there's hiring goals attached to mm-hmm. it, and so they set these goals ahead of time that there would be, uh, they would meet, and then sometimes exceed the the federal hiring goal, which is at six point nine percent working hours for women, and. Um, it changes the whole culture of the job site. And we, you know, I would chase women down in the parking garage and say, hi, hi, hi. <laughs> you know, we're, we're eager to see each other. We leave, um, you know, we leave tampons for one another in the in the porta johns And, you know, we it's it's a friendly and welcoming environment. It changes things. You know, sometimes it's a situation where you don't realize how much of yourself you're keeping undercover or hiding away until you get around some people that are more like you. And then you start to feel a little more, you know, a little more comfortable.
1: Amy, your your organization, the Northeast Center for Trades Women Equity, holds monthly recruitments. Tell us about when one might be coming up if somebody's listening to this and they say, I know somebody or I am somebody who wants to join the trades.
5: Yes. So the best thing to do is to go to our website, which is buildalifema.org. And there we have all of the dates for the upcoming events. Um, right now we're on a schedule. Really, the best thing to do is to go to the website. (laughs) Um, But they happen at the Laborers Hall, which is in Holyoke at the bottom of the hill uh, on Route 5, um, and they happen between 5 and 6 p.m. You can go in. I think you should go in person because we're a lot of fun. You get two or three tradeswomen together and we're kind of unstoppable. <laughs> <laughs> you can also go on the Internet. You know, there's a Zoom option as well. And you can sign on and see the and see the presentation. And we just we give a rundown of like, what is a building trades apprenticeship? Um, what are the different trades? What's what is an iron? What does an iron worker do? Um, what does a laborer do? You know, what are your starting salaries? And then uh, what are the things we love about it? You know, and and tradeswomen will come and say what we love. And then also what are the hard parts? So we're not going to sugarcoat it either.
1: You were mentioning before that you saw a video that the Carpenters Union put out there and saw these women on top of buildings uh, that they helped to build. You told us that you uh, worked a crane to do emergency repairs on the collapsed Hoosick Tunnel in North Adams. You worked on a barge in the Connecticut River transporting material to cap coal tar contaminants from power plants. You rolled asphalt on the Mass Pike. You already mentioned the Mass Mutual Center and the MGM uh, Casino in Springfield. When you go by these places now, do you have that same feeling of pride and awe that you had when you saw that original carpenters video that inspired you to join the trades
5: oh yeah we are i'm um, obnoxious on a whole <laughs> <laughs> trades workers we are I, I should say that i didn't i'm not a crane operator so i was a i was an oiler on the oh, crane. yeah, right. right so i like it's being around cranes is very fun um, but yeah, we're obnoxious. You know, every time I drive down 391, when they replaced the signs on 391 between Holyoke and Springfield, and I say, oh, I, I dug the hole for that. I dug the hole for that sign. And I, <laughs> I put the, you know, the, we took the mini off of the trailer and then I parked it there. And then I, you know, yeah, I love it. I love it. It's, and it's only getting more. You know, I've been doing this for eight or nine years and, and we're all like this, all of, the, all of the trades workers that I know.
0: <laughs> Just trading stories of where you've been and what you've had your hands on. But oh,
5: that's hundred percent.
0: But that's kind of awesome too to say, like, much like the video that inspired you to do this, like being able to say, like, oh yeah, I was a part of this. I was a part of that, and that thing too, and that, and you interact with these things every day. Sure,
5: it's one of the things I love the most about working in construction is all of the places you find yourself. Mm. You know, we have a hiring hall model as a union operating engineer. So I'd get laid off of a job. I was working in New Hampshire at Dartmouth College on a Friday, and I got a call from my business agent. He says, Amy, I got a job for you. Starts at Monday morning. You're going to be working on the railroad. Just show up at the bottom of Route 5 and talk to Joe, and, and he'll give you the rundown. You know." So I get there for a 7 a.m. start, and then by 8.30, I'm like running like a rail car.
1: You know? <laughs> That's amazing.
5: It is, yeah. <laughs>
1: Amy Calandrella, tell us that website one more time if people, women in particular, are interested in working in the trades and joining what you're up to.
5: Sure, it's buildalifema.org.
1: Amy Calandrella, operating engineer with Local 98 out of Southwick, part time labor instructor in their apprenticeship program on the board of Western Mass Area Labor Federation. And on the Organizing Committee of Western Mass Tradeswomen, thank you so much.
0: Ah, that is so cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I want to
1: join. I know, right? (laughs) Tomorrow on The Fabulous 413, we're discovering first-generation experiences through
0: animation and comedy. We'll be joined by Zul Manzi, the creative force behind the animated series The Matumbilias, which releases its second season and is getting a screening at Westfield State University on Thursday.
1: Plus, new linguistic knowledge with our resident wordster, Emily Brewster from Merriam-Webster, got a question, thefab413 at nepm.org. I'm Kalee Smith. And
0: I'm Monty Belmonte. We'll see you tomorrow on the Fabulous 413.